Good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, uh, if you would open your Bible to two passages this morning, I'm going to have you put your finger in both of them because we'll be going back and forth between them. The first is Ezekiel chapter 34 in your pew Bible. That would be page 676. So Ezekiel chapter 34. And then secondly, in John chapter 10, which is on page 842 of your pew Bible. So Ezekiel 34 and John chapter 10. I'm going to read just the opening portion of John chapter 10 in preparation, just the first 18 verses, but we'll be looking at things in the entire chapter. So bear with me. Um, John chapter 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out, all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. But they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill and to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge... I have received from my Father. Let's pray. Father God, we're confronted with these statements here by Jesus in uh, the declaration of his own role. And they are high thoughts indeed. We've perhaps let them trip in and out of our ears as though they're just ordinary thoughts, but they are anything but. And I pray your spirit to 
open our hearts and minds to drink in some of the wonder of what's being communicated to us here. Make Christ all and all to us. Open your word, we pray. In his name, amen. There's uh, very little doubt that this passage is unfamiliar to anyone who has spent any time in their Bible at all. Uh, After all, many of us were probably introduced to Jesus by someone, some good soul, saying, you know what, read the Gospel of John, and uh, you'll find out who Jesus is, and gladly so that, that people directed us there. But as we come to these verses today, I want to make just a few prefacing comments and you know how preachers lie, a few prefacing comments, and then I want to tease out a series of observations, and they're going to be followed by three truly short applications. But we need to look at two things right at the very outset. And if this sounds too academic to you, hang on, I'll prove to you why this is so. And that is, note this very carefully, chapter 10 follows chapter 9. Yeah, ooh is right. That, that, that's the, the proper response. I'll show you why that's so important in a few minutes. And, and I know it seems obvious, but it really is important to get, it, get at what Jesus was getting at as he went through this discourse in chapter 10. He wasn't just randomly telling a quaint story. There's a reason why he did what he did in this spot. And then secondly, if you're not paying close attention, you're going to miss the fact that that Jesus switches up his metaphors as you work through this passage. He has two separate metaphors that he works with in an application to himself, and uh, they apply and reveal him in interesting ways. We'll come back to that switch of metaphors by time we're done, but we're going to spend the bulk of our time Uh, at the very beginning. So going back to chapter 9. Chapter uh, 9 gives us the account of Jesus and the disciples, probably in Jerusalem, we don't know exactly, and they happen upon a man who was born blind. And his disciples ask a question which may be strange to our ears, but would not have been to them. They said, Master, uh, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, it was common for Jews in that day to assume a one-for-one correspondence between anyone's misfortunes and particular sins. Sometimes even in the church, that still gets accorded to people. Uh, I could tell you uh, some of the the behind-the-scenes additional stories to Horatio Spafford after the loss of his daughters and then writing that famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. When he returned to the United States, there were other things that went on, and his church eventually booted him out because they said anybody who's gone through this much trouble must have some sort of hidden sin and left him really quite bereft of, of the fellowship that he and his wife needed so desperately. Now, this was especially true for the Jews if someone was impoverished or se- severely disabled, like this blind man was, blind since birth. Now, the reason was that some rabbis had taught that if a pregnant woman engaged in some sort of heinous sin like uh, idolatry, that the fetus then was also guilty because the fetus was in the mom. So therefore the sin would have been visited on this man. And so the disciples uh, drew from what they had been taught and said that. So 
while the scriptures teach us that all pain and suffering and disease have issued genuine, generally from the fall, except in rare cases, you don't see scripture tying specific ills to specific sins. It happens in a few rare cases, but not typically. Um, so Jesus answers that the problem here isn't personal sin. Rather, it is how the Father's anointed agent is sent to use this as an opportunity to show God's glory in overcoming sin's global consequences. That's what he's after. To demonstrate something of the kingdom that he is beginning to usher in. And more specifically, that as the light of the world, he brings sight to the blind. He enables us to see God's reality in the face of the world's fallen darkness. To bring us into what Francis Schaeffer used to call real reality. Understanding the universe the way God understands the universe. Don Carson on this passage notes, quote, It's not just a miracle, it is a sign. The work of the Father, mediated through the sent one, to shed light on those who live in darkness. Close quote. So, Jesus responds to the situation. He spits on the ground, and he makes a little bit of mud with the spittle, and then he anoints the eyes of the blind man with that mud and tells him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. The man does, and he gains his sight and returns to Jesus, seeing. Now, just why Jesus healed in this specific way is the subject of endless speculation. The truth is, it doesn't matter. The text doesn't tell us, so it's not important. So leave it to the side. Leave that to the people who want to contemplate the lint in their navels. All right, that's, it's, it's nothing that we need to do, or Scripture would have opened it up for us. Now, this miracle really stirs up the people. It gets them excited, uh, especially those who have known this man and his family for such a long time. And that stir causes the Pharisees to want to investigate further. After all, a miracle like this raises questions as to the possibility of Jesus being a prophet, or maybe even more than that, the Messiah. And this is problematic because earlier in the book of John, we'd already found out that the Pharisees had told people if any of them were to claim that Jesus was the Messiah, they were to be put out of the synagogues. So this raises, this brings a tension point home for everybody. To top it all off, Jesus did this on the Sabbath. And they would have considered that as labor, as unlawful work. So the Pharisees get right on it. They've got to dig down and find out what's really going on here. So they interrogate the man, the healed man. Then, not getting much joy from him, they interrogate his parents. And not getting much joy from them, they go back and they interrogate the healed man again. They simply can't wrap their heads around what's happened here. No matter what, no matter how obvious they're unwilling to accept what this might imply about Jesus' identity. They just can't get there. And in the midst of it all, the healed man quips this in his second interview with them. Don't turn there, it's in chapter 9, but picking up in verse 30, the healed man says, quote, Now this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. 
And we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing, close quote. At which point, in exasperation, they just throw him out. That's the best thing to do with somebody you can't answer? Get rid of them. So Jesus and he meet up again shortly after this, and when the man falls to worship him, Jesus says, quote, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who may see become who's, who see may become blind. Again, that may sound a little strange, but we have precedent for it in the Old Testament. You remember that when Noah built and entered the ark, it was built for the purpose of saving. But in people's refusal to hear his preaching and warning, as Hebrews 11.7 7 says, he condemned the world. Jesus had come to show grace, which he did in this case. But in the process, we see that those who reject his demonstration of grace suffer judicial blindness to further revelation. Now, this principle remains true. One cannot reject God's revelation and then expect not to suffer the consequences. It's just a reality. If we refuse God's word as God's word, as authoritative for us, for instance, then we close ourselves off to seeing anything else that God reveals. Let me give you a simple example. If you're driving in your car and you're listening to the radio and you don't like the song you're listening to, you turn the volume down. The problem with turning the volume down is it turns it down on the entire radio, not just the station you're listening to. You turn down the volume on God's Word in any passage, you can't change the channel. It's the only channel. You turn the volume down on everything it says. When we reject anything from God's word because we don't like it, we end up shutting our own eyes and ears to everything else it reveals, not just that one thing. So some of the Pharisees, overhearing Jesus' statement to the blind man, shot back, well, are we also blind? And Jesus responds that had they known their blindness, like the healed man originally knew his blindness, they could seek for healing too. But since they claim to not need Healing? Well, they're going to remain unforgiven and in their blindness still. That's where they are. We remember that no one is saved until they come to know their need of salvation. They must confess to being a lost sinner before they can have the forgiveness that's found in the cross. This was part of the scandal of John's baptism during that day. Whether you know it or not, baptism was not something unfamiliar. It existed in Judaism for centuries before this point in time. One was baptized under the old covenant when they were somehow ritually unclean for whatever reason. And uh, a leper, when he was to be cleansed and brought back into the community, he had to be baptized before that happened. Or if someone became a proselyte, a Gentile who began to believe in Judaism, uh, he would have to be baptized before they were brought into the community. But in all cases, it was a confession of needing cleansing from sin and defilement. 
All sorts of sinners were flocking to hear John and confessing their sins and being baptized, confessing that they knew they needed to be cleansed. And so it is those who refused to come, in effect, said they didn't need cleansing. And so they weren't. So, so the majority of the Pharisees and the Sadducees simply couldn't admit to this. That's why they didn't submit to John's baptism. It meant that all of their law-keeping was insufficient, that they needed something else to be fully right with God. So all of this is what leads up to chapter 10. This is the lead-in. You don't want to make a, a, an abrupt break here. This is the continuing of the story. And the need for Jesus to begin unpacking the difference between himself as the true shepherd of God's people and the corrupt and blind spiritual leaders who were supposed to be shepherding God's flock until the Messiah came, but in denying Jesus as the Messiah, actually led people away from him and to condemnation. That's the confrontation. Now this figure of the Jewish leadership, and I'm almost done with the introduction, so take your shoes off, it's going to be a bit, all right? This figure of the Jewish leadership being referred to as shepherds is a well-known Old Testament trope. You can find it in Jeremiah, in Zechariah, in Isaiah, and other places, but especially in Ezekiel 34. So if you have your finger there in Ezekiel 34, I want you to turn back there with me for just a minute, and let's look at the opening verses there. Picking up in verse 1. I'm just going to read these six verses. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, the leadership. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Close quote. It's quite an indictment. And it's what gives Jesus' words in verse 11 and 14 of that passage of uh, chapter 9, their full force, or in chapter 10, that he is the good shepherd in contrast to these other shepherds, over and against the wicked and derelict shepherds, the religious leadership of Ezekiel chapter 34. That's now exemplified in the Pharisee shepherds who in chapter 9 were so bent on retaining their power and position that they would deny the obvious and the obvious in turning men away from Christ and doing the worst possible damage to their souls. And so it is then that Jesus begins with his first metaphor couched in the pictures of shepherding. And just for quick handling of this, his remarks really break up into three sections. In verses 1 through 5, he paints himself as not just a shepherd, but 
the shepherd. In verses 7 through 9, he changes the metaphor, showing how he's the door of the sheepfold. We'll come back to that at the end. And then in 10 through 16, he emphasizes his role as the good shepherd, which actually ends up filling out the chapter. And in all of it, he gives us so grateful for the music this morning. Stop and contemplate the wonder of this good shepherd. And what makes him good? What makes him so extraordinary that, that there is just nothing and no one comparable in any way, shape, or form? And we can only tease these out briefly, so uh, I'll try and talk fast if you'll listen fast. But they're just a wonderful and sweet revelation. Uh, to the soul. So picking up in verses 1 through 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And this gives us our first consideration then. That Jesus is God's only authorized shepherd. He's the only one with absolute right to the flock. Now, there probably aren't too many of you here, although there might be some, uh, who have much direct experience with sheep herding. I don't know. I, I know I do not. Um, but And all of these things would have been pretty common to Jesus' original audience, highly familiar and highly suggestive. And so it is with this idea of the gatekeeper. It was common, especially in the outlying villages, for a number of families to gather their various flocks together at the end of the day and put them into one large enclosure. And then they would hire an individual who would be the gatekeeper, who would watch over these amalgamated flocks until the morning. Um, And then in the morning, the individual shepherds would come back and they would call their sheep by name. They knew each one of them. And the sheep would follow the particular shepherd out for pasture during the day. So the gatekeeper was there to make sure that that thieves and robbers didn't have access to the sheep without resistance or at least sounding an alarm for the rest. So the point Jesus is making here is that we, we really, and we don't want to miss this, he's the only one who is really authorized to shepherd God's flock. He's not putting the spotlight on the gatekeeper here, but on himself and his role as the shepherd of God's flock. Going back to Ezekiel chapter 34, we see that he alone is the fulfillment of what happens in that chapter. So flip back to Ezekiel 34 for a second. I told you we were going to do this, then we'll be done with Ezekiel. Just a few verses there, picking up in verse 11. After this indictment of the Jewish leadership back in Ezekiel's day, then God gives this amazing prophecy to the prophet. Picking up in verse 11, quote, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. 
And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Wow. But Christian, take note. This is your Savior. The one great shepherd of God who takes responsibility for you, believer, for your soul and for all your eternal provision. He's the one who cares for you in your life now and especially for all of eternity. You will never, ever be without the ministrations of the great shepherd. That's the first point that Jesus is making here. Contrasting himself to those leaders. He alone has the right to shepherd God's flock. They've given up that right in the way that they've treated the people of God. And as God's shepherd, oh, he takes full responsibility for her. For every one of us. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies in this regard. Jesus himself is the one who is searching for and seeking out his sheep. Jesus is the one who's rescuing them from all of the places where they've been scattered. He's the one who gathers us out of all the nations and feeds us with good pasture and binds up the injured and strengthens the weak and destroys those who would harm us. This is our Jesus. He's the good shepherd. And then Jesus begins to unpack all that that shepherding is going to entail with his singular divine access and right to God's flock. And so we come to the second in verse 3. I love this phrase. He calls his own by name. He calls his own sheep by name. What a wonder that is. Jesus knows each one of us personally, individually. He saves us individually into a gathered church, but he doesn't save us as a group. He saves us individually. He's the one who names us for himself, and then he calls us each individually in due time. We are a large flock, mingled in the world with numberless others, but he never loses sight of each and every one of his own. And in saving us out of the billions in this world, he calls us each by name to new life in himself, the same as he called Lazarus out of the grave by name. I read once where one wag said when Jesus came up to the graveyard that day, if he had just said, come forth, instead of Lazarus come forth, all the graves would have opened up. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, sounds good, so I use it. You know, I just throw it in. But, but I want you as an individual believer to know today that you're not some faceless, nameless byproduct of an impersonal saving act. You are saved and safe today because He has called you by name. 
So Romans 8.29 reminds us, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, and also He also glorified. You get the word that's repeated over there all the time? Those. What a wonderful word those is. Christian, He called you by name. By name. And so you were delivered from the domain of darkness and translated into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Absolutely astounding. And then in verse 3, He leads us. I want you to notice that third, that He does not just call us out he leads us. I remember hearing John Gerstner years ago. He was R.C. Sproul's mentor. He said that when he was brought up, he was raised as a Lutheran in the sense that it was the Lutheran church they stayed home from. Um, there, are, there are some people who, who send their kids to church, um, but they don't lead them to church. But Christ leads us. How precious it is that he leads us. He never leaves his sheep to our own devices, to find our own way. It's not what he does. He's always calling to us and guiding us through his word and pricking our ears by his spirit. He leads us out from the constraints of the law into the joy and freedom of cleansed consciences, forgiven sins, full justification of the unbreakable promise of the resurrection. As Psalm 23 reminds us, as we recited it here together earlier, He leads us in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. By His Word and by His Spirit, He's always leading us on toward holiness and the life and existence we'll have with Him in glory. After His resurrection, Jesus met with the disciples uh, a number of times. It was a 40-day span there. But when once he told Peter that Peter was going to suffer a martyr's death, and Peter, very much like me, looking over his shoulder, looked at John and said, Yeah, well, what about him? That's a, that's, I'm more interested in him than I am being crucified upside down. Thank you very much. And, but Jesus replied, If it's my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And do you remember that exchange with the disciples in John 14? When Jesus says that in my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you? But I go to prepare a place for you. And, and I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am you may be also. Thomas, good old Thomas, not quite grasping what it was Jesus was getting at. He said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. So how can we possibly know the way? To which Jesus replies, well, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So where was it that Jesus was leading? To the Father. It's where he's always leading. We want him to lead us to a better car deal. To a prettier wife. To nicer kids. No, no, he's leading us to the Father. That's always where he's taking us. Never into sin and ever and always to the Father. That leads us to verse 4. And when he has brought out 
all his own, he goes before them. He goes before us. Now, remember, this is Jesus explaining his own shepherding to us. He's telling us what the good shepherd does. He's telling us his ministry. Christ never sends us where he himself is unwilling to go, even to the cross. And he goes before us even there so that we might know that in him our safety is absolutely assured, even as Mike prayed for us this morning. There's something so sweet in this that appears from the whole context of the sheep-shepherd metaphor that, that he's using. One commentator put it this way, quote, Unlike Western shepherds who drive the sheep, often using a sheepdog, the shepherds of the Near East, both now and then in Jesus' day, lead their flocks. Their voice is what calls them on, close quote. He is a leading Christ. The Lord is our shepherd, and that's why we'll want for nothing. Because he's the one who leads us beside the still waters, safe and refreshing waters, and leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, as Psalm 23 reminds us. He never leads us into danger unprotected. Even when we have to pass through the valley of the shadow of death itself, his shepherd's rod and staff, his tools of herdsmanship, they comfort us in every distress. As in Hebrews 9, we read, quote, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. And so as as 10.19 goes on to say, we too can have confidence to open, to enter the holy places through the blood of Jesus. Do you realize what your shepherd has opened for you? Do you know what prayer really is? It is that Christ has opened the door so that we can enter into the very throne room of the living God and place everything before him. What a ministry to us. What a shepherd. And where he leads, we can follow. He's always going on before us to the cross, to the grave, and to resurrection. He never just sends us, but he goes to prepare the way. Now, as if all of this that we've covered was not enough, it's not because I got lots more, uh, as if that isn't enough, he goes on and, and, and jump down a few verses to verse 10. And there in verse 10, he tells us that as the good shepherd, he gives abundant life. Unlike those false shepherds who had no right to the sheep like he has, whom he styles thieves who only come to steal and destroy because they deny Jesus his rightful place, he came to grant abundant life. Life in the reality of God's creation, plans, and purposes. Not just mere existence, just getting by, but into the meaning of life itself, into him Sadly, in our day and culture, even, even in the church, some teach that the abundant life that Christ gives is nothing other than material wealth and worldly success. How tragic and how tragically wrong. I mean, think about this. Really? Jesus went to the cross so I could have a better car? So I could have more cash? 
so I could have a, a better spouse, a higher paying job, a bigger house. It's obscene. If in Christ, Paul writes, we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Christ died just to get me more of what everyone else has and then only to leave it when I die? Does that make any sense? What would such a gospel vision of the good shepherd mean to those countless believers throughout history who have been marginalized and persecuted and even martyred? What would such a gospel vision mean to to the millions in the slums of Bombay or Calcutta or even in Rochester, New York? To those who have no conceivable hope of changing their lot in life. Not in my notes, so I get free time on this. A few years ago, we had a a gal who was a member of our church. And uh, shortly after she came, I had the pleasure of meeting her mom and dad. And uh, her dad came in, and he was in a wheelchair. And he uh, he had had his left leg amputated. Uh, just above the knee due to diabetic complications and he was going to be going in to have his right leg amputated not that long after and so I met him and said hi to him and then said how are you doing he said I'm great I'm being raptured one piece at a time (laughs) I thought there's a guy who's got his priorities in the right place he he wasn't worried about earthly stuff that, that was behind him. He had faced the hard stuff and faced it in Christ. So what does it mean? That the, it, does it mean that the super rich, the Bill Gates and the Elon Musks, that somehow they're the ones that had the abundant life? Are those really the ones we're to be emulating? No, the abundant life he grants to us is, is coming, coming into the reality of the cosmos in living, vital relationship with the God who has spoken spoken all of it into existence and being restored to His plans and His purposes for all of life and creation, all with an eternal destiny in Him. Religionists, they can only offer what the world already has. He offers the sum of all things found in Himself. Man, what a difference. And then in verse 11... He says this, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Man, did Jesus preach the gospel at this moment? That's the heart of it. Christ didn't come to bring some system, some new way for men and women to claw their way back up to God in an endless labor of works. No, the good shepherd The divine Son, so loving the Father and those that the Father loves, agrees to give up all the felicities of heaven, to come and live among us in our depravity, to suffer His holiness, to be offended by the stench of our collective sin, and love us and die in our place, suffering the just wrath of God that we deserved and making an atonement for sin in His own blood, for his enemies. What a gospel. 
false shepherds, other supposed spiritual leaders, none of them, none have even remotely claimed, let alone actually done, such a thing. They can't. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He dies in our place and he spares nothing, not even his own life, to rescue us from sin and condemnation. He bears the wrath of God justly due us for our sin that we might be blessed according to what He deserved. And He also ever lives to make intercession for us. Seventh in verse 14. I love the way that He says that I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. He He knows his own. He's not just acquainted with us. He knows us. He knows your every doubt. Your every fear. Your every foible. Those things that come to you in the middle of the night and bother you so that you can't get back to sleep. He knows you. He knows how your mind works, how your heart works. He knows everything that's going on in you, every failing, every concern. There was a, during the days of Abraham Lincoln, and I don't know if this was actually something he said or not. I read it somewhere on the internet, so it must be true. Um, but, But the British Empire was at the height of its global domination at that particular point in time, and a saying had arisen that the sun never sets on the British Empire. And Abraham Lincoln is said to have quipped, that's because God can't trust them alone in the dark. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but but God never wakes up in the morning and says, what those people did last night while I was asleep. He's never shocked. He's not shocked by anything in your life that is still unsanctified. He's not thrown by it. Before he came, he knew every place you would fail him, and he still came and bought you for himself. No surprises to him. No one else in the world really knows us, not the way he does. Nothing is hidden from him. And if I might add, as I said, he knew us before he saved us. Nothing found in us can possibly deter or in any way reduce his love, his care, and his compassion for us. He can never stumble on some new information about us which would in any way diminish or modify his tender love and his desire for us to be with him. All of us, And I hear this especially when I read books on marriage and what women want from marriage. All of us really, 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 really want to be thoroughly, truly known by someone in the depths of our souls. And at the same time, we still hide some things because we're sure that if people knew the real us, they'd ultimately reject us. But not him. So Hebrews 4.13 reads, There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. Our shepherd knows us well. Beloved Christian, 
that stuff you think nobody knows, oh, he does. And he loves you. And he has purposed to finish the good work he began in you. What a shepherd. That's why he can truly meet every need in the most perfect of ways. And then in verse 16, we're told that he is still gathering. Uh, He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. He will bring in his sheep from all corners to make us into one flock. None will be left out. None will be passed over or missed. Remember in the gospel accounts how he goes out of his way to reach the Samaritan woman by the well. And how he has to give Peter a vision so that he'll take the gospel to Cornelius' house. How he commissions then the disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. And what marks all of his sheep out as his own, truly being his own? It's this simple thing. All of his sheep hear his voice. We hear his voice. We listen to him. His global work culminates in gathering us all together in one. And this is what makes us true Christians. Being his sheep who know and hear his voice. My wife showed me a meme the other day on the web. And there was someone who had had said, I want to hear God speak. And somebody else had a sign that stood up and said, oh, there's a book for that. (laughs) Yeah. He speaks. He speaks. And then in verse 28, dropping all the way down in the chapter, he tells us that he gives eternal life to each of his sheep. Now, that word eternal is a very interesting word in the Greek. And if you look it up, and you really do all the parsing and the digging out, you know what it means? Eternal. It just means what it says. He gives us eternal life, not temporary life. Those who are His will never perish. They can't perish. The very nature of the life that He gives is an everlasting, imperishable life. We can't kill it. It can't be taken from us. We can't give it away. It's, I know this is strange, eternal. And if words mean anything, eternal means eternal. Never. Because eternal life is not a possession. It's a state of being. That's how he has transformed us. Look at how John himself writes this later in 1 John 5. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Why is it eternal? Because it's bound up in Christ. And for believers to lose their eternal life, Christ would Himself would have to lose His. Your life is bound up in His inextricably. They can't be removed from one another. For he is their shepherd, their guardian. He will bring them safely home to the Father. Each one of you who is in Christ will make it. After all, what part of Christ's own body do you think he can lose? None. And lastly, in verses 28 and 29, these are such powerful words here. 
Picking up in 28, he says, um, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He keeps us in absolute safety. Nobody can snatch us out of his hand. Read those words carefully again. No one can take us out of his hand. Not Satan, not the world, not some other person, not even ourselves. It is just astounding hubris for people to think that we can be stronger than the Father and the Son grasping us together in their hands. Impossible. Who do we think we are? Not only can no one snatch us out of his hand, but the text says no one will. It's a guarantee. I'm telling you, that's the state of affairs. For we're a gift to him from the Father, and the Father who is greater than all, God Almighty, and none can overcome him. That's why the Apostle Paul can write later in Romans 8, and you all know this, that I'm sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, what a good shepherd. What a good shepherd. Three things in closing. I'll make these very brief. And the first obvious application is to the church. And especially to you weary, worn, troubled, tired, faltering, discouraged Christian. Take one more look this morning to those nail-scarred hands into which you've been committed. Take heart. Oh, take heart. He's the good shepherd, the great shepherd of our souls. And no matter what under-shepherd may have failed you or hurt you or what in life has been the heaviest of griefs to you, He will watch, He will keep, He will lead, He will protect you, and He will bring you safely to the Father. You are safe in Him. He cannot fail you. Know that today. Let that grip your heart so that when you leave here, Maybe you, a couple of you can, are young enough and able enough to click your heels. Do a little jumping for joy. What a shepherd he is. And in the second place, this becomes a wonderful primer for all of those who take leadership in Christ's church in any capacity. The New Testament words of uh, elders, teachers, overseers, pastors, and all the like, they derive their role from the same word and concept here as shepherd. That's as we saw in the Old Testament too. And we would do well to revisit these passages regularly where God censures those shepherds of Israel and mark well the things that they're condemned for. To be on the lookout for how our own sinful hearts can easily use and abuse God's people. And so it is that under shepherds to the great and good shepherd, we, this is how we get our marching orders. To lead where Jesus would lead only to the Father. To protect and remember that the flock is His, not ours. To be careful not to fleece them, to bind up their wounds, to refrain from harshness, to gather and not scatter, to care for them as He does. I am so 
honored to know that that is the heart and the mind of the leadership here at Webster Bible. You are in a good place. Because the under shepherds here have their eyes fixed on the great shepherd. And lastly, to those of you who are not in Christ yet, the one thing which stands above all as marking out God's own flock, as we heard earlier, is that they hear Christ's voice and follow him in righteousness to the Father's throne. You remember I mentioned at the beginning that there was a shift in metaphors in this passage uh, to where Jesus, picking up in verses 7 through 9, stops referring to himself as the shepherd and switches to being the door. And we don't want to overlook it. Because in that statement, he marks out his own exclusivity. No one belongs to God's flock but those who find admission to the Father through Christ and Christ alone. He's the exclusive means of access to God. And what a gut punch to the Pharisees this must have been. As he'll reiterate of himself in a short time later in John 14, he'll remind us he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. And that said, as the verses above note, all the sheep in the whole world hear his voice. The question is, in hearing him call today to come and follow him, will you? If you're not a Christian here today, please, I'm asking you to listen. Will you follow him or will you remain your own or following the philosophies of this fallen world and the voice of your own passions that remain and you'll remain left and abandoned and set aside to be judged later? Please listen to me. He's calling to you right now through my voice as he does through everyone who preaches the gospel. He's dealing with your soul this moment. He's calling you to come away from your sin, away from your pretended right of supremacy over your own life and goods. To come out from this fallen world and culture and its values to live in the light of his word. And away from believing that you can be good enough in yourself and need no redeemer for your sin or for your rebellion or unbelief or pride or passions. He's calling you to come away from your self-justification before God and to cry out for mercy and forgiveness that's found only by trusting in the one who stood in sinner's place at Calvary, taking the full wrath of God upon him for human sin, that all who look upon him might be cleansed, and he will be your good shepherd. We've labored, however imperfectly, to show you something of our precious and great shepherd. So won't you come to him? He stands calling to you right now. Heavenly Father, we are stunned again at the marvelous things you place before us in your word. Things that we would tremble to just take upon ourselves. If you hadn't written them, they would be unlawful to believe. But here you are in all of your sweetness, tenderness, and glory. 
I ask for my brothers and sisters in Christ that they will find great comfort and strength in what we've seen today and leave here remembering that you will shepherd them all the way through. And for those who do not know you, that the work of your spirit would open the eyes of the blind this very moment. And that they would hear the shepherd's voice and come and follow. And I pray it in his name. Amen.